Praise the Lord. I am Rajat and you are listening to Biblical Demand Podcast where we discuss and answer difficult questions raised against the Bible, God and the Christian faith. In the Gospel according to Apostle John chapter 8 verse 32, Jesus said, "And you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free." Amen. So let's get started. Welcome to Biblical Demand and today our guest is Dr. Paul Kupen. It's a joy to have you here, sir. Thank you very much. Good to be with you, Rajat. So sir tell us about your faith journey that how did you become a christian and what persuaded you to become a theologian well i grew up in a pastor's home uh wonderful godly examples of my father and mother who came from uh, eastern europe my dad from the ukraine my mother from latvia um and they came after the war to the united states and my dad pastor a russian ukrainian uh church in Uh, Cleveland, Ohio, and so I grew up with a uh, with a loving, uh, loving parentage, a wonderful family, and so I was very interested in biblical matters early on. Uh, I went to uh, to study uh, at the uh, you know in in biblical studies in undergraduate and then uh, master divinity degree. Um, so I was interested uh, very much from the very beginning. uh but it was in high school and when i was probably about uh 15 16 that area that i realized that the christian faith was more than just something that my parents passed on to me but it was something that is objectively true and i became exposed to the world of apologetics and that really helped to cement my faith that uh jesus christ truly rose from the dead as a historical reality uh and that there were eyewitnesses there was a strong case that could be made for this the historicity of this event uh, and so i was exposed to these sorts of things but i was planning on going into uh, a more of a ministerial uh, position pastor missionary something like that um, but then my first year in seminary i took a course in philosophy which was very helpful to me in answering a lot of questions so i ended up getting a double masters degree a master of divinity and a master of arts in philosophy and i was uh, i studied under stuart hackett who had been an influence to william lane craig who was also at trinity seminary when i was there so i was uh, i learned very much from both of them and then i was on served on staff of the church in new york for 6 years and then went on to get my phd at marquette university and so i've been it's been a blessing to be able to bring together the worlds of biblical studies theology as well as philosophy and so it's been a good mix and so i've been able to work on books like is god a moral monster or did god really command genocide having more of this uh this blended uh background of disciplines great great that's a wonderful story that uh how christianity you know that objectivity of christianity has led you to uh, to pursue this call which god has called you for and uh, see sir uh, as you have read, uh, read many other religions also also and other religions also claim to be true but on the other hand we have the bible so how do we know that bible is true well the some some christians will say well i only believe what's in the bible well they believe more than that uh they believe that uh you know in mathematical equations they believe in the second law of thermodynamics and so forth things that can be discovered by general revelation that is how god has made himself known in a general way uh that is accessible to all of humanity through reason through conscience through human experience through uh common sense uh, even 
And, uh, and so these are ways in which God can speak to us. And, and so it does leave a question that if there is a God who exists, who brought the universe into being uh, a finite time ago, uh, is there any way that we can connect with this God? Is there any way that we can know more about this God, this deity uh, that exists? And that is where special revelation comes in, that we know uh, we know more about this God through Scripture and especially through Jesus Christ, who is called the Word of God. So this is the special revelation that we're talking about and gives greater definition to the uh, to who that God is out there, who has made all things and designed the world and so on. And so as we look at the the Scriptures, and I know we'll talk about the uh, the uniqueness of Christ and so forth later on, uh, but I, uh, but I think it's important to understand that we can at least begin by saying that the Bible is generally reliable, that Jesus is making unique claims about himself, that Jesus is saying that he is the way of salvation, and he not only says these things, his followers, conservative Jews, uh, also believe in his message that he is worthy of worship. And Jesus confirms those claims by rising from the dead, as he predicted. And so this is a game changer in terms of highlighting the uniqueness of Jesus Christ in a world uh, of different religions and worldviews and philosophies. Uh, when you look at how Jesus compares to, in, in his claims and so forth, to other world religious leaders like Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius, and so forth, his claims far outstrip anything that uh, Muhammad or Buddha and so forth ever said about themselves. So it is important for us to keep in mind that these, uh, these Gospels are written in a very plain, commonsensical way, uh, that they are revealing to us something historical, and that these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you go to the Book of Acts, uh, are credible, reliable sources. Uh, and, that, uh, and that even if you don't believe that the Bible is inspired, we do, you know, even secular historians recognize that the Bible still gives us valuable historical truths. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll point to people, I'll point people to two books in the New Testament, uh, Paul's two letters, one is to the Galatians, the other is in 1 Corinthians. And even if you don't take the, the Bible as inspired scripture, no scholar, secular, Christian, uh, doubts that Paul wrote those two books within a short span of time after the death of Jesus. And what we see there is valuable information that Paul is giving to us about the resurrection, about, the, about Paul's going to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles shortly after his conversion, uh, of confirming these facts with them, of receiving the gospel message from them that he records then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it lists all these eyewitnesses uh, that there are, you know, it doesn't include the women, uh, which it, the Gospels include, but, uh, you know, which, but, but it doesn't, so that's an additional set of examples. But we also have, uh, you know, 500 people who saw Jesus alive at one time, and Paul said most of them are still alive. He appeared to James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, who it, during Jesus' earthly ministry, John 7 tells us, didn't believe in him. Uh, we also see that he appeared to Peter, to Cephas, uh, and to the other disciples, you know, the 12, or technically the 11, uh, that he also appeared to Paul, who had been a persecutor of the church. So we have uh, one eyewitness after another 
Uh, and, and we have, again, a simple reference without even calling the scripture. We have historical, re historically reliable information of, related to the resurrection such that we can begin there as a starting point. If there's a God who, be, who exists, who began the universe, and we ask the question, well, has this God revealed himself? Well, we can start looking at the New Testament because that's really the most obvious place to look since Jesus is making the most uh, strong claim, the strongest claims than any other competitors. And so in this case, we can then say, well, is there any credibility to his claims? And we do see there is a credibility to his claims, the presumed authority that he has. And he simply expects people to believe in him to worship him, to obey his word, and so forth. And he rises again from the dead to vindicate those claims. So, so I think here we have a very, uh, a very robust uh, case that can be made built on this kind of foundation. But I think that's a good starting point, that we can begin to talk about the Bible true, it being true, uh, starting in these tangible uh, beginning points. Yeah, I'm not talking about, you know, some people will say, well, can you prove that the Bible is the word of God and so forth? Well, I think when you're dealing with uh, a secular audience, uh, I think we begin more modestly. Uh, we let God's spirit do some more work, you know, you know, you know uh, beyond what we can do to persuade them of those things, but where we can at least show that the Bible, uh, especially in the Gospels, is historically reliable that we can then begin to build a case that, well, maybe there's, there's more that's uh, true about the Bible, that you have miracle claims in the Bible. And so if, there, if we can see that where these biblical authors are correct, where we can verify, then we could also say, well, what if then those miracles then have more credibility because these authors are repeatedly accurate in the, in the verifiable claims that they have been making. So I think that's a general strategy that I use that I found helpful, and, and so I just uh, pass it on to the audience here. Great, great. So uh, the historical evidences of uh, person of Christ and the work of Christ uh, is, the, is the more evidential when we look for a Bible. Uh, if when we say that Bible is true and the people, those who have witnessed Jesus and his miracles, mm -hmm. and everything is recorded and everything is real. So that's how makes uh, this Bible, that's how it uh, Bible claims to be true. Uh, um, since you also uh, a philosopher and you teach philosophy, so this question comes to mind and may, many, I think, atheists also uh, say this, that is God a thought? I mean, uh, you know, it's a psychological uh, thing or, you know, how do you deal with that question? Well, I would say, is atheism a thought? Uh, is it invented by human beings? Because if you're going to simply throw out the idea that, oh, your belief, and this is typically what happens, uh, they will, the, the critic will say, well, God is just a psychological idea, a psychological crutch to help you to get through the difficult spots in life. Uh, through those crisis times. And so people like Ludwig Feuerbach and uh, Karl Marx and, and uh, Sigmund Freud, they were ones who talked about this kind of the, the psycho, psychoanalytical idea that this is why you believe in God. You can't handle real life, and so you need to cling to something uh, intangible beyond yourself. But where's the proof of that? Well, they will dismiss God because of the alleged origin of the idea 
but that says nothing about the rationality of belief in God. Uh, you know, that's, they're simply talking about the psychology of belief. And we can do just the same to those who are atheists. Why are you an atheist? Maybe you don't want to have a father figure, a God figure, an authority figure in your life. Uh, the sword cuts both ways. So if you want to play that game, the, the theist can play it just as well as the critic can. But it doesn't prove a point. It commits the genetic fallacy that you that the truth or falsity of something is uh, is the case because of its origin. Uh, so that's the you know, I think that's just specious false uh, argumentation. But what if we turned that on its head? What if we said, and, and sometimes people will say this about genetics too. We can apply it to the uh, the realm of. You know, you know, human beings seem to be wired to believe in God. They talk about uh, the the God gene, or uh, human beings being wired. They have what's called this hyperactive, uh, you know, design detection detection uh, device that we've got. This you know, this uh, a, this agency detection device that we've got that we can detect design, that we can detect um, action. That we just seem to be wired. So when there's, there's a noise going on in the house at night. Well, your immediately your immediate thought isn't, oh, maybe the wall was a little weak and something fell down. You think, oh, there's an intruder in the house. There's an agent in the house, uh, and so so that's how. The, so many people who are doing the the uh, you know this cognitive science of religion will say that's just something that is kind of genetically wired into you and then reinforced through culture and so forth. Um, but I would say in both cases, it doesn't disprove God but rather it could actually be a reinforcement for the legitimacy of belief in God. If you turn that around and say, well, what if there is a God who exists and we have a, in us a deep longing for something transcendent, for something beyond ourselves, could it be the case that God has precisely wired us so that belief in him would be more, uh, you know, more, you know, little, would be easier? And the same thing that we've been biologically wired to believe in God. And there have been studies from all around the world that children, even apart from whatever their cultural uh, background is, before they've been maybe you know, gone to school or, uh, or you know, to university and so forth, they believe that there's some sort of a superhero figure, some sort of a designer, some sort of a power independent of us. And this is something that's not just Western. It is something that has been done in different parts of the world uh, through Oxford University and, and Justin Barrett. Uh, who's been the researcher uh, heading up this project. So it's been a very, very interesting to see that God is making belief easier for human beings because this is how we're wired. And, and as St. Augustine said, uh, you, you, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So as we look at this question of the psychology of religion, it doesn't have to be seen as something that detracts from belief in God, but rather can be seen as reinforcing belief in God, that we actually are made for God. We are wired to have that, as Blaise Pascal, the philosopher, said, uh, to have that God-shaped vacuum within us filled by that being. I mean, we have, a, you know, human beings are, as uh, Bertrand Russell said, uh, you know, that they're incorrigibly religious, that they are, uh, you know, that they cannot get away from kind of this religious impulse uh, to lean on something, to look to something beyond themselves and so forth. Uh, well, it makes sense if there is a God, that this would fit very nicely, that it would dovetail. So we don't have to pit the idea that we're, we seem to be wired for God or have a, a, an emptiness and a longing for God on the one hand 
and and God's existence, that these are somehow opposed to each other, actually we can see them as coming together very beautifully. So the problem with the atheist is that if it's true, if it's true that we're somehow we feel wired for God, um, that we find security and significance in this idea of God, therefore God must not exist. And of course, that simply does not follow any more so than a person who uh, doesn't want God to exist uh, makes God non-existent. So, so those are some thoughts on that. But I think it's also important to actually look at some of these world's leading atheists. And not again, it's not to play this game of, uh, I know what your motivations are, therefore uh, your worldview must be wrong. But rather to point out the fact that because many leading atheists in the world, kind of the hall of fame, if you will, of atheists, you know, from you know, Marx and Nietzsche and uh, and uh, Bertrand Russell, all the way up until the uh, the new atheists like Christopher Hitchens and uh, and uh, Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett, have had negative. They have all had negative to non-existent relationships with their fathers or father substitutes. And so, what often what seems to be happening, and, and uh, Paul Witz has written about this called in a book called Faith of the Fatherless, a taught psychology at New York University. And he did a study of all of these atheists, and there seemed to be a, a deep connection between a lack or failure of the father figure and you know, their inclination toward atheism. You know, and you can see this, that if, if my earthly father or father's substitute has let me down, has brought shame to the family, has maybe died, like Daniel Dennett's father died in a plane crash when he was four years of age, uh, that this has a profound impact. And so people will judge the merits of the heavenly father based on the merits of their earthly father or the you know, even their any sort of relationship or non-existent relationship they've had with that father. But that exactly reverses things. What we should do is look to a the greater heavenly model to by which we judge the uh, you know the you know the worthiness of our earthly father. That, that God is the one, as Ephesians 3 says, God is the one who is, who, who, has the, who is the model for fatherhood for all of the families of the earth. And so this is what we need to be keeping in mind. Uh, and, and, and I think that you can see how this psychology might work, that, uh, that people will dismiss God, not because of so much uh, intellectual reasons. I mean, they will bring those reasons, perhaps, and we should look at them and examine them and so forth. But I suspect, as I talk to atheists, sometimes when they're very angry, I'll, I want to know what's behind their anger, why they're hostile to the idea of God, to church, and so forth. Something's perhaps gone wrong. It's, you know, and so I'm not saying that this is true for all atheists, but I'm saying the ones who really have a strong edge, uh, a hostility, and so forth, I want to try to get to the bottom of that and first find out what their story has been, and that maybe even in talking about their story, this will help them to see, oh, maybe some of my reasons for rejecting God aren't so much rational or intellectual, but perhaps more emotional, psychological, and so on. That's pretty interesting. I mean, the explanation you gave on this question. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's something we sh should ponder about that we are pre-wired to, uh, you know, have this religious beliefs and, you know, that we can see in nature and be morally and through nature, we can see that there is someone who is superior than us, who who is supernatural exists. That's very uh, great to know, sir. And uh, so we see that. Uh, I mean, I know you uh, you have written two books on this question. 
that uh, we see God in the Old Testament being very quick to judge, angry, and his wrath was very quick. And he come and, and we read that he allowed genocide, killing infants, and uh, but on the other hand side, on the other hand, we read in the New Testament God being forgiving, loving, and kind. Uh, so what is what what is the some uh, what is the point we all are missing here when we ask such questions that God has been allowing genocide? Right. Well, I'd say there is no genocide in Scripture. Uh, we don't see God um, you know, commanding anything like that. Uh, as I mentioned in my two books, and I have a third one coming out uh, in a probably year and a half or so. It's called "Is God a Vindictive Bully?" And I'll do more work on this uh, topic. Um, but but basically, you know, in, in our book, Matt Flanagan and I, in our book, Did God Really Command Genocide? Uh, we say that there's actually no case for that. For one thing, uh, there is no sort of ethnic hostility toward any of these peoples. It's not because of their ethnicity, their tribal uh, identity that is the problem. It's actually their moral behavior that is the problem. And uh, God being quick to judge, well, uh, let's back up a little bit. God tells Abraham... Uh, was around, you know, say 1900 years before the time of Christ. So you know, he tells Abraham that he is going to wait until the sin of the Canaanites, the Amorites, has been filled up. So the time is not ready for the for the land to be given to the chosen people. Rather, God is waiting over 500 years, over half a millennium. That's pretty patient, I'd say. Uh, and he's waiting, and, and this includes Israel's suffering in slavery in Egypt. Uh, so God allows his people to go through this only to you know, time the entry into the promised land, which God is giving them, but it's concurrent with judgment upon the Canaanites who are engaging in acts that would be condemned in any civilized society, bestiality, incest, ritual prostitution, uh, you know, child sacrifice, these horrific things that the Canaanites are known, known for and that God says, I don't want you to identify with them in any way, remove all of their religious uh, shrines and so forth, get rid of them so that their identity is stripped away, kind of like in Nazi Germany when everything was stripped away, uh, the, the Nazi leaders, the symbols, the, 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 the hierarchy. Uh, once you got rid of all of those things, then you had still the German people, and that's the kind of thing that you have. Really, what God is concerned about is the removal of identity in association with pagan, Canaanite, you know, pernicious religious practices. Uh, so if, if that is done away with, as many Canaanites as want to can stay in the land. In fact, we see Rahab, is, who is a Canaanite, uh, is embraced by the people of God, that in chapter 8 of Joshua, there are people who are at this law, the reading of the law by Joshua, it's a covenant renewal ceremony. There are people in, in the, the town of Shechem who are there listening to Joshua reading these words. So they're identifying with the people of God. Uh, we see the Gibeonites too. And we see that God you know, is, is willing to relent if people, uh, and this is what jo Jonah learned, or Jonah, Jonah knew, but he didn't want to see God do it. But when he was sent to Nineveh and God had mercy on the city, Jonah complained. He said, I knew that you are a God who is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. And I didn't want to come here be precisely because you might show mercy to our enemies. So, so God is willing to relent even on those promises. 
So it's not as so there's a certain conditionality even in these things. You know, forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed. It sounds absolute and and uh, it, it cannot be revoked. Uh, no, if people repent, uh, there's no problem. God accepts. God embraces. Uh, or people can, of course, can leave. And the, the primary command is for the Israelites to drive out the Canaanites. So if they stick around after they're seeing the power, they knew the power of the God of, is, of, of, of Israel's God. They knew what the, he had done in Egypt. And you get reports throughout uh, Joshua and 1 Samuel uh, that you know, these these people living in Canaan knew exactly who this God was and what he had done to the Egyptians and so on. So they, and there's a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night as the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. So a, a very clear sign that there is something unique about this, this God of the Israelites. Uh, so, so again, I would, there, there's so much that I could say, but let me just transfer now to, uh, to the New Testament. We've seen that in the Old Testament, there's actually more reference to loving kindness, patience, and, and so forth of God there than there is in the New Testament. Uh, now, what we see, that there are themes of both kindness and wrath or judgment in both Testaments. But in the Old Testament, we see that, you know, that there is a certain, uh, you know, that, there, that yes, there is, God is sometimes dealing with people who have broken the covenant. And so he acts swiftly with his people. They should have known better. And so God acts uh, the gold, with the golden calf, with the uh, with the Midianites who seduced people at uh, the men at Baal Peor, and so forth, that God is intervening and stepping in and bringing judgment where people are flagrantly violating the law of God. But God is, as you see in Israel, Israel's history, God is patiently sending the prophets, warning them to turn away from their wicked ways, lest judgment fall. And so finally it does. But God is persisting in in sending His messengers. You get to the New Testament. And we see both love intensified as well as wrath, that the love of God is seen predominantly in the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, that God enters into our world, gives himself for us. And that means that if you reject this gift that God has given to us, then, then it is all the more uh, you know, um, severe to if you turn away from this gift of salvation that God has offered. And Jesus Christ himself acts in severity, in judgment, uh, that he dries out the money changers from the temple. Uh, Jesus says in Revelation chapter 2 that I will, uh, I will, that he's going to uh, destroy, kill uh, uh, those who are the followers of this false teacher, Jezebel, in Revelation 2. It says in Jude 5 that Jesus, the best manuscripts say Jesus, after he had delivered the Israelites from Egypt, he destroyed those who did not believe. So this is referring to Jesus himself. So Jesus is engaged in this kind of uh, you know, you know, severity in the Old Testament, and so that carries over into the New. So we see in Revelation, sorry, in Romans eleven twenty two that God is both. It says, "Behold, the kindness and the severity of God." We see them in both Testaments that there is this continuity, but we see a, a kind of an intensification of both of them as we get to the New Testament. Uh, that there is even something greater uh, at stake if you give up on God's revelation in Jesus Christ. So those are a few things, but I would say that uh, finally, God's wrath is actually an expression of his love, that God loves and he is wrathful because people are dehumanizing, people are harming, people are, uh, are harming themselves in violating God's law. And so God brings wrath uh, hopefully, in order to uh, to redeem, rescue, that people will turn. 
but but justice will not sleep. God will cosmic justice will ultimately be done. So those are some perspectives that we need to keep in mind in this in this conversation. Yeah, that's really very insightful. That uh, and, and, and it's really good to know and that God has been consistently loving and wrathful in both the testament. It's not only in the Old Testament, but when God is angry, He's angry because of inhumanity. Of the or wrongdoings of the people, but he's a uh, loving God, definitely. Uh, so, uh, so Dr. Paul has written two books: uh, "Is God a Moral Monster?" and "Did God Really Command Genocide?" The you will find the book links in the description, so you can order that books. Uh, so, see the first foremost uh, idea and foremost belief of someone in God is to get salvation. Right, someone. That's why you know people believe in God that they will get salvation. That's what all I think all of the religions are claiming that they will get salvation by believing so and so. Uh, but Bible, on the other hand, says that salvation is only possible through Jesus Christ. So how salvation is possible only through Jesus? Well, uh, the scriptures tell us that there's one mediator between God and, and humankind, and that is the, the, the man, Christ Jesus. Only God can save. And so Jesus comes into the world both fully God and fully human in order to bring about that perfect reconciliation between God and humanity. That God enters into our world, identifies with us, isn't removed from us, isn't one of these gods in mythology, uh, but actually enters into our world, in, you know, is wisdom embodied, is salvation embodied, as we see the, the entrance of, uh, of, of a, a, a breakthrough, really, in comparison to other religions. So, so I would say that uh, salvation is possible because Jesus is indeed the God-man, that salvation is only possible, uh, you know, only God can save. So then the question is, well, how do we compare Jesus, and I've said this before, how do we compare Jesus to other world religious leaders? How do they stand up? Well, I've seen the claims that Jesus made are unique, and Jesus his claims were vindicated when he rises from the dead. All these other world religious leaders uh, perished. Their bodies uh, died, you know, they, and remained in the they died and remained in the tombs. But, but with Jesus, he rose again from the dead, which, which signals yet another you know, indication of uniqueness, that he makes claims, his own very conservative Jewish followers worshipped him. You know, Thomas says, my Lord and my God calls Jesus divine. And, and then Jesus himself is raised from the dead. We also see another indication of uniqueness is that the Christian faith emphasizes the grace of God, that we are saved not through our own performance, that salvation or liberation is, is kind of an Eastern term, uh, that's, that salvation does not rest upon me. I, if it were up to me, I could never perform adequately for God. God is actually the one who needs to step in and rescue me. And so the heart's cry of God be merciful to me, a sinner, is really what is at the core of salvation, that we cannot engineer our own salvation. We've been saved, as Ephesians 2 says, by grace, through faith. That it's not of ourselves. It's not of our performance. It's not how much we, how many mantras we chant. It's not how many, uh, how many beggars uh, we help. It is a matter of trusting in God, releasing our pride, turning, acknowledging our own wrongdoing, and saying, "God, you know, nothing in my hands I bring," and we say, "Simply to Thy cross I cling, Jesus." So salvation is possible through Jesus. 
uh, you know, for for a number of different way, you know, you know, for a number of different reasons, that uh, that there could only be, you know, a logical bridge that God becomes human in order to bring salvation to us. The the, the theologian Anselm said, reason this, you know, why God became human. Well, it's only God who can save, and so, in, in essence, we see that God is, you know, in you know what, what sin is is human beings substituting themselves for God. But in salvation, it is God substituting himself for humanity. And so this is really the picture that we have. It's a beautiful picture and really embodies all of the, these epic stories of, you know, in, in world literature, in many of our movies today, that there is redemption. In fact, Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, said that the gospel story of God, creation, fall, redemption, recreation, that all of our best fairy tales... Uh, once upon a time, you know, was, things were good, uh, that there was harmony between human beings and, and God or whatever, uh, you know, in, 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 in our earthly stories, there was peace and so forth. And then the curse came, something went wrong, human beings deviated, and then everyone fell into great dismay. There was curse, there was, you know, things went, were going wrong all the time. And then a champion finally comes in and rescues those people from their, you know, they can't do anything about it. So somebody has to come in from the outside and rescue them. And then finally, after evil has been removed, they lived happily ever after. That is the story. But it's not just another fairy tale. It's actually historically true. It's Jesus is, as C.S. Lewis said, uh, myth became fact. So th these mythical stories that are now incarnated into Jesus, who is the wisdom of God, who has dispersed his lights throughout the world, not saving lights, that's only through Jesus, but at least many pointers that move us in the direction of redemption in Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's really uh, amazing to know that Jesus, I mean, God, as John says in the Gospel of the, John says, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And Colossians says that, you know, there is, mediator, there is only one mediator between God and human is Jesus Christ. It's pretty much, uh, it's pretty interesting to know and it, it, that salvation is actually, it's actually possible through Jesus Christ. And uh, so moving on to the question, this is my last question. I ask this question to every, uh, every guest that what advice would you give to the youngsters, those who are in this internet age and because other philosophies and worldviews are also compelling? Yeah, I would say you, you should evaluate worldviews based on how well they match up with reality. It's easy to get lost in a virtual world, but how does my worldview match up with history? How does my worldview match up with, say, scientific discovery? How does my worldview uh, match up with, say, rationality? Uh, how, you know, am I believing something that is self-contradictory? Uh, you know, so, so you know, some people say, "Oh, the Trinity is self-contradictory." No, it's not. It, it's referring to three persons who are in one being, kind of like Cerberus. There are three heads uh, within one canine being. Uh, so, so there's one indivisible dog, <laughs> uh, but yet three centers of awareness within it. So there's no contradiction there. So, and, and I would also ask this question: We, the, probably the most fundamental question that people will ask is. Why is there evil in the world and so forth? And, and I think this can be a good stepping point into the topic of, well, which worldview actually does the best job of making sense of the problem of evil? 
which worldview gives me basically a standard by which I can judge something to be evil. You know, there, there's you can have you can have real currency without counterfeit money, but you can't have counterfeit money without real currency. And you can have God without evil, but you can't have evil without some sort of a standard by which to judge something to be evil as a deviation from the way things ought to be. And we ask, have to ask the question: In a world without God, why ought there to be any way things are? Evil is a departure from the way things ought to be. And if there is a God, then there is a design plan that we see here. And we have to ask the question, which worldview does making sense? Does, it, doesn't mean, it doesn't mean which worldview answers all of our questions about evil, but which worldview makes the best sense of evil. And here what we can do is, is simply talk about the resources that the Christian faith offers, that Jesus Christ you know, comes into the world to rescue humanity, to redeem us, to guarantee that cosmic justice will be done, that we will experience new life, that all wrongs will be again, that God will wipe away all the tears from our eyes. Well, how does atheism do in comparison? You know, how does, you know, how does atheism do in comparison, just even in accounting for how human dignity and worth could emerge from valueless processes? So I would say that when it comes to uh, to uh, the internet age and so forth, yes, it's easy to get taken off track by various fads and so forth. But I'd say, look to the most obvious place. Begin, I'd say, begin with Jesus. Jesus is the most obvious place to start. Jesus is one who, you know, everyone wants to claim Jesus. You know, Gandhi wanted to claim Jesus. Hindus like to claim Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Muslims claim him as a prophet and so forth. Well, maybe that's a good place to start then. We have, you know, who is the kind of the most standard, reliable person when people are talking about moral and spiritual authorities? Well, Jesus is at the top. And not only is Jesus the one who speaks, he, his followers believed it. They were willing to die for it. They didn't fabricate it. They died for, if, if it were a fabrication, they would have died for what they knew was a lie. Not, not just dying for any old lie, but dying for what they knew was a lie. But why would they all go to their deaths, basically, uh, except for John, who was exiled? Why did they go to their deaths believing that Jesus was raised from the dead when they were just making that up? So, so we have, and then we have Jesus rising from the dead. We have Jesus who guarantees that there will, through his resurrection, that there will be a new world to come, that God guarantees that utopia that everyone is looking for in Jesus Christ, that will come. There may be suffering. There may be hardship during this time. But Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Thank you. That's a very insightful uh, information that how to actually compare worldviews in the basis of the sensibility, how, how much sense the world we make. So thank you, Dr. Paul, for taking our time to be on Biblical Demand. It's a joy. It was a really good conversation with you. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you.